This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 12 of Equestrian Legends. Hello, I'm Chris Stafford, and my guest this week is American event rider Michael Page. Michael Owen Page was born on September 23, 1938, in New York City. The first of four children, Michael set himself an early standard of horsemanship by winning the American Horse Shows Association's medal finals in 1956 and was encouraged by his father to pursue his equestrian career in Europe. He trained in the world-renowned French Cavalry School of Samur from 1957 to 58, and upon returning to America was recognized for his potential as a U.S. team member. His international career included three Olympic Games and three Pan American Games. At the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, he placed fourth individually and earned team silver riding Grasshopper. And at the 1968 Mexico Olympics on Foster, he won individual bronze and team silver. His Pan American Games record is flawless, with two individual gold medals, first in the 1959 Chicago and then in the 1963 San Paolo Games, where he was also a member of the gold medal team. In the 1967 Winnipeg Games, he returned to win another team gold medal. Grasshopper was inducted into the U.S. Eventing Association's Eventing Hall of Fame in 1999. Upon retiring as a competitor, Michael coached the Canadian three-day event team at the 1976 Olympics and served as chef de keep at the 1988 Olympic Games in Seoul, the 1990 World Championships and 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona. Michael was inducted into the U.S. Eventing Hall of Fame in 2006. He continues to be a popular clinician and spends seven days a week teaching new generations of hunter-jumper riders as well as judging. Michael has served as chair of many committees, including the AHSA Equitation Committee, Nominating Committee and USET Nominating Committee. In addition, he judged the AHSA ASPCA National Equitation Finals seven times and the Intercollegiate National Finals four times. He and his wife, Georgette, live in New York. They have one son, Matthew. Well, Michael, it seems that even in your advancing years, life is not slowing down for you. You, you have the enthusiasm that you always had. Right. Well, training event horses was the beginning of my career. And, you know, currently, you know, what I'm doing is, uh, you know, after Mexico in 1968, I, you know, I, I, I had the two medals there. And as I was on the airplane going home, I knew I was not, I was going back to the office to work. I said that was going to be the last event I rode in. And I was going to continue my riding by doing jumpers. So, and that's what I've done for the last, ever since 1968. I've been, you know, riding, training, you know, jumpers, equitation horses, you know, little hunters, but basically, you know, jumpers. 
So not so much of the eventing these days, though. No, Your no. success was always with the eventers, but um, what, what made you make the switch then, Michael? Well, I was, you know, I always had a part-time job for, uh, working, you know, in the city with my father. And, uh, you know, I was in sales, so I was able to, you know, work a schedule that allowed me, you know, after I got did my four years in Europe, um, to, you know, do the team, do the Olympics, do the training for that, you know, just by leaving the office. But I always came back to the office you know, after, you know, I was done with that. And then I knew that in, in 1968, which was my third games, right, that, uh, you know, it was just not part of the cards to to full-time be an event rider, an event trainer, uh, you know, and my interest hadn't been necessarily to be an event rider. It was what my education and experience led me to, but uh, it didn't make any real difference to me whether I used that knowledge and experience to do flat work with horses that were going to be jumpers or continue to do that. And that's, you know, what we did as a, you know, as a, you know, as a, as a training program for, you know, the horses I rode. So, you know, eventing was sort of a, a, a chapter in my life and it ended in 68, which was a lot of years ago. And, but it, it, it didn't uh, minimize the amount of time I invested in it. It just was, you know, the horses still had four legs. They, instead of, you know, galloping cross-country, they, you know, went more in the ring, and it was more structured to my lifestyle at that, you know, for the last uh, 50 years, I guess, right, 40 years, anyhow. Well, you, you are and always have been, Michael, a city boy. So let's go back to those early days growing up and give us a sense of your early, very early childhood, your earliest memories Michael. It is pretty, pretty, pretty clear because the step-by-step process really, you know, when I look back, you know, I was extraordinarily lucky. You know, when I was 15 years old, it's really simple. My father and I were sitting in the living room and he said, Michael, you know, you know, if you're as passionate as you appear to be about riding, you know, we, uh, you know, probably you should you know, think about how you could develop your riding skills with the limited amount of resources that we have. And my suggestion, instead of going to, this is when I was 15, he said, my suggestion was uh, you have a periodical of a monthly magazine called The Light Horse. He said, you look in the, in, the, in the magazine and you write to four or five places and see and see if there's some place we could send you instead of going to camp for the summer. I think, my father said, that you could get a better education, learn more about a passion you have by going and spending a summer in England where you speak the language than you could by us sending you to camp. So I wrote and I got three prospectuses back, and one was from Captain Eddie Goldman in Cheshire, and so my father suggested that I go to England for the summer and learn more about what I had a passion to learn more about, which was to ride better. And so I went to Eddie Goldman's for the summer, and I spent a summer, I wouldn't say crying, but learning to put a horse on the bit. And at the same time, he had Sheila Wilcox there with a horse called High and Mighty. And Sheila, as you know, won three badmintons. And when I came back to this 
country at the end of the summer and starting to develop uh, a little bit of knowledge about, you know, how to ride a horse in a frame and on the bit, and which was really an interesting uh, dynamic because uh, a friend in the barn, Saddle Tree Farms, and, you know, there where I was riding, uh, a gentleman had a you know an old cavalry horse where it did, it did local jumper shows and had a big brand on its neck and he said to my father that he would pay half the expenses and he thought that it would be um you know he would enjoy having a young man ride his horse and go to the horse shows and do the equitation and et cetera et cetera and so I did that for the year and a half after that. And uh, I went to the Madison Square Garden and uh, I braided the horse. The horse had a big brand on its neck and the medal finals. I actually won the medal finals in Madison Square Garden on this, uh, um, you know, old cavalry horse. And um, his name was Candlestick. And I would say about eight years, nine years later, um, after having been on the Olympic team teams, um, Ginny Moss and Hope Scott. Ginny, Ginny was one of the judges. Mrs. Moss from Southern Pines. And I used to, on the way to Florida in the winter, in show jumping, I used to stop in Southern Pines and bring some Olympic mementos to Ray Firestone, who had purchased uh, plane sailing that Mike Plum rode, and Mrs. Moss, who had been instrumental in... In, in, in giving me the first opportunity to do something a little bit special. And I went to Mrs. Moss, and I said, Mrs. Moss, I'd like to ask you a question. I said, I won the medal finals that you and Mrs. Scott judged. And, you know, I had a horse that I braided, had a big brand on its neck. And how did you pick me? to win the medal finals in Mass Square Garden. And she looked me straight in the eye, and I'll never forget this. She said, Michael, you were the only rider that had educated hands. Mm-hmm. So what the stepping stones that my father sang, you needed to learn more about riding. And Eddie Goldman and Sheila Wilcox in Cheshire um, giving me those first experiences of, you know, having a horse on the bit and riding from your leg to your hand um, was, uh, was you know, was a chapter that was written that, you know, only if that had happened would it have ever happened that I won the medal finals. And that was a big step in my next, you know, next chapter, you know, going back to Europe for the four years of high school and uh, being able to walk into the Federation Francaise de Sposicest and General Bucco um, said to me, you know, who are you? And as he said, you have to get a get a recommendation reference from your national federation. Since I just won the medal finals, they knew who I was. And two days later, they got back and he said, well, you're a lucky young man because this year, for the first time, the civilians are going to be allowed to ride at the French Cavalry School at Saumur. And so that is uh, that was the next chapter of my career. 
Well, two obviously wonderful opportunities, not least of all, as you said, with Eddie Goldman, who himself right. was a legend in, in his you own know, lifetime. Did, you've heard of Eddie then? Oh, absolutely, you? yes. Right, so I spent my first summer there with my father saying, you know, he didn't do nothing about riding. He said, Michael, you know, since we don't have, you know, a lot of resources, we have to be creative about finding ways to give you an education that is going to broaden your knowledge and what was extraordinary was that Mrs. Moss, Ginny Moss, you know, who's a hunting, you know, person legend from Southern Pines, recognized something different that I did that allowed her and Mrs. Scott to let me win the medal finals, which was an important piece of the next step of, you know, the first year that, uh, that, civilians were allowed to go to Samurum, and that was an extraordinary two years. I remember saying to myself, I can't believe it. All I have to do is spit on my shoes to my boots, live long enough getting through the, you know, the tap queue that they start three months, six horses a day, no stirrups. You know, what they did for the, for the, uh, the officers' courses that were going to be, you know, become, you know, second lieutenants in the French cavalry. And this was the first year that civilians were allowed. And uh, so that, I started there. And what happened one day, the Equion chef, uh, Colonel Margot, who was, you know, uh, an iconic dressage figure and the head of the, of the Gadrenoir at Sumer. I remember him saying to me, I was, I was in the, what, what they had there was they had the, the, uh, the, the perfection guest, which was for the officers, and the sumach de manege, which is for the the, the non commissioned officers, and all, everyone was only allowed to go in the non commissioned officers course. And uh, I had a room in the non commissioned officers barracks, but since I was a civilian, I was a member of the officers mess and um, NCO mess. And uh, uh, one day we were, you know, and. In the, in the NCO, the, the, the course, you know, we did six horses a day, an hour and 15 minutes, no stirrups to begin with. And you literally, when you, and you, had, you did no stirrups, so you had to jump on from the ground, they turn and go away, hour and 15 minutes, you come back. You know, you did the, another horse would all be lined up. There'd be uh, 12 of us were in the non-commissioned officers course. Horses would all be lined up. There were 300 horses at the stables, which was, you know, minuscule compared to the 3,000 that were there when, the, you know, they actually fought on a, on a, you know, when they had real cavalry. Uh, so, you know, we wore layers off the, you know, beneath our britches, and it used to be that we would spend, or I would have spend 45 minutes sort of sore, so sore, Sitting on the, the saddle, uh, that you had to get the, the 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 blood had to become you know warm from the you know the time that you spent in the saddle before it stopped hurting, and you just didn't eat lunch. You just you just sort of stood against the wall, you know, and uh, you jumped back on and off you went again. And then one day, I was. Uh, walking across the carrier and uh, Margot looked up he was riding 
Et ils disent, page, venez ici. À partir de demain, vous montez avec le CPE, which was my transition from the NCO course to the officer's course, of which Jack LeGuff was in charge. And it meant that the French government paid for all my competing, and I rode French army horses. And Jack LeGuff, who was probably the finest horseman I've ever met, and who I you know, got to know very well when did we, he rode in the Rome Olympics and, you know, and, uh, you know, was, became, you know, the legendary coach of the American team. And, you know, to jump ahead a little bit when we were in Mexico together, um, Jack, um, had Guillon, who was also, you know, uh, at, at summer and, uh, won the individual medal and, uh, And he said to me, Michael, you know, I'd like to talk to you, you know, when the event is over. And I said, Jack, sure, that's great. And then we went, and, and then he asked Georgette to come with me, you know, who's now my wife. And she was grooming for me in Foster. And we went up to the French little chalet. And he said, you know, the political situation in France is really, um, you know, very difficult for me. You know, I don't think that there's going to be the possibility of me finding a spot in France that would be something I would be interested in. You know, I don't know exactly how he put it, but, you know, we were chatting away in French. And, and um, I said, holy Jesus, Jack, I have a great idea. You know, Major Lynch, who's the American coach, is uh, going to be, uh, is going to go, is, is, is finished with the American team because they're starting a, a Morvan Park in the United States and he's going to be the head headmaster there. I said, when I get back to the States, since we don't have a coach in the United States, I'm going to go visit, go call Mr. Stone, who's the president of the USET, and go down to this office and suggest that he think about hiring you for the next coach for the United States team. And he said, Michael, that would really be great. You know, you know, if it happens, happens. If it doesn't happen, it's still a great idea. When I got back to the States. You know, I called Mr. Stone's office. And I'd been there once before when I'd come back from badminton. Um, I'd come back with a mustache. And I'd gotten a call from the, Mr. Stone's office saying that wanted to see me. And I went, holy shit, what do they want to see me about? And uh, I walked into Mr. Stone's office. And he said, Michael, sit down. He said, um, do you like riding on the team? And I said, yes, sir. Right? He said, well, you know, um, that stuff that's underneath your nose and above your lips um, is not part of representative of the United States team. I said, yes, sir. So I went back and obviously shaved it off. So I'd been there once before, Stone and Webster. And so I sat down and, and Mr. Stone said, I'd like to talk to you a minute about what I hope and think would be the greatest acquisition the American team could have for the future since I'm no longer going to be an event rider and, you know, doing other things. And I explained to him my relationship to Jack Guff, what Jack Guff had been, how he had trained the Olympic gold medalist in uh, Mexico, had he been ridden on the team, how I thought he was probably the, one of the greatest horsemen or probably the greatest horseman I'd ever met. And, uh, He said, Michael, he said, just, just, just as it happens, I have a mayor called Shuvi 
who is running in the Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe in Paris in two weeks. And he said, when I go to France, I will look up uh, Jack LaGuff and, uh, you know, I will let you know sort of what, what, what happened. Then about a month later, I got a call from Mr. Stone's office saying that they had hired, tentatively hired Jack LaGuff to be the next coach of the team. So when I walked away from the team, I walked away feeling that, you know, I was personally happy with the success I had, but that I was also helping um, set up the next years of what the team ultimately became, which was, uh, you know, juggling up the best uh, team in the, in the world. So that was sort of like all the pieces sort of right. fit together. Well, I want to talk a lot more about the team and your right. your involvement there. But uh, before we do that, I want to go back a little bit, if we may, sure. to your very earliest days, Michael. You, you mentioned that when you were in your mid-teens, your father right. gave you the encouragement to make your way with horses. But what right. was life when you were a very small child? You were the first of four children. Tell us a little bit, give us a picture, if you will, of that very early days growing up in New York City and, and indeed your school days. Were you a good scholar? Were you an enthusiastic no, I was, scholar? I, was, I wasn't a good scholar. And, and we, you know, we moved to Pelham, which is lower Westchester County. And, uh, you know, and the only, the only thing I really remember is when I was 10 years old, um, I, the, somehow the bug or the passion for riding started. And there was uh, uh, about, oh, uh, you know, a quarter of a mile down in actually the Bronx. We were right on the edge of the Bronx. There was a riding academy called Split Rock Riding Academy. And I used to ride my bicycle down, and I started taking lessons once a week. But I also remember, you know, haunting the stables. And, you know, the horses were all in straight stalls, and I remember climbing on one horse and going from horse to horse to horse to horse down the line, you know, going from one horse to the other. And uh, when I was about, oh, I would say 13, you know, I, I always had a passion. I was the only boy that rode in in uh, middle school. I was the only boy that rode in high school. I remember when we moved up to, uh, you know, from Pelham to, uh, then we moved to Briarcliff, which is in the middle of the, of the county, and then we, and then Georgette and I moved to Bedford, and then we moved to North Salem. So we, we probably, I probably lived, you know, 35 miles in my whole life, you know, from the time I was a child. But always, 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 um, I had a passion for riding, and I remember my sister started, and at Split Rock, where there was uh, one day, she, she was always talented she was a cheerleader she was smart she went to cornell i you know went to europe when i graduated from high school and i remember taking trigonometry and i failed it you know because i can't keep track of numbers and the sequential type of thing where did you go to school, school? i went to silenoy um, public you know middle school and then pelham high school and i before uh um, we moved to Briarcliff my half of my senior year, and I disliked uh, Pelham High School. It was very big, and I didn't have any friends because I used to go ride. And uh, when I moved up, we moved up to Briarcliff. All of a sudden, I had 
three friends, you're the three musketeers, and, you know, I had a great half year, last half year of my high school experience. So I was never, never really very good at uh, school. I, you know, I used to read, but I wasn't very good at math. I mean, I don't know whether it was just because I was absorbed with something else, but uh, just uh, keeping track, which just like I am now. I have, you know, I've never touched a computer. You know, I'm, the only cell phone that I have is in my car. You know, I talk to people on the phone if they want to speak to me or I want to know something. My wife has an iPad. I can ask her, you know, what stocks did today or something. But, you know, I, I think I'm just about as absorbed with what I enjoy doing and still try to do it as well as I can do it as I was when I first started. You know, it's it's different, obviously. You know, you have to make a living. And, uh, you know, but also because of the the great experiences I've had and the great diversity of the education I've had, you know, I feel that, you know, giving back to the young riders who, who feel that it's impossible to sort of go where they want to go, it's never impossible to do it. You have to not just dream it, you have to, you know, intelligently create the opportunities that are going to allow you to step by step. And even if you don't get there, if you fulfill, you know, your, 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 your passion, you know, to become the best you can become, you know, that's probably more important than anything else. I think all the great riders, you know, yes, you want to win the, you know, gold medal in the Olympics. But more than that, you want to ride horses that think you're really cool and that they go for you because you ride better than almost anyone else that can ride them. And I think that's the most fulfilling aspect you can be as a horseman. And I, all the horsemen I know, I think, you know, and I, you know, I, I, you know, I used to think, you know, that, you know, I'm not a very competitive person. You know, it's just that there are unique courses that you challenge you to use your experience and your passion, you know, to, to fulfill who they are. And if you can do that, they ultimately carry you to those places. I mean, like Grasshopper or Foster. I mean, they were, they were special, unique, different. You know, the last four jumpers that have been donated to Ken. I mean, it's like... You know, it's just as fulfilling and interesting now as it was. I mean, you don't get the, you know, the the suitcases full of stuff at the Olympics. You don't get the medals. You don't get, the, you know, the glory necessarily. But if you've had that, you don't really need it anymore. You know, what you need is, uh, you know, is if, if that is who you are, you need the fulfillment of doing what you passionately love to do and feel that you're, you know, not so diminished in, in, in where you are now. I remember, you know, I think after the 68 Olympics or sometime after that when I was show jumping, I remember Billy Steingraus saying to me, he said, you know, Michael, you know, if you could really only learn the technical aspects of riding, you know, you would really be very good. And I said, Billy, you're absolutely right. I am limited in the technical aspects of riding, but I hope that the horses compensate for 
the technical aspects that I don't have by becoming who they can become more because the test technical aspects to a certain extent will limit the fulfillment of the horse's abilities, right? And, you know, it's a it's it's like going back to watching uh, Margot at Silmira who was the uh, Equion chef and would kick everybody out of the indoor rings when he went and he was a dressage, right? And uh, you know, there I rode as the last member every once in a while on the reprise des Equiers, which, you know, is the you know, which is a you know, it's a, it's a great thing, you know, in dressage. And uh, but Margot was was, you know, I think what I am just saying. You know, he was so so much a master, but he was a he was a master within who he was and what he created in the horse, which made all the other winning riders respect who he was. And that was something special. Well, you mentioned that you were not an enthusiastic scholar, but in fact, your father and his brothers uh, were were in Ivy League colleges. You uh, uh, very well educated. Uh, right. I want to talk a little bit, uh, if we can, Michael, about yeah. your parents and right. the values that they bestowed upon you. Let Let's hear about your father. I believe he was a big influence in your life. My father was very probably. I mean, I still, I still. Uh, you know, one of the things, and I do clinics, you know, I talk about, you know, when I went off to Europe, you know, and this this is, you know, true, and it, fix, it affects me to this day. He, he talked to me, you know, he had he had wanted to be a Shakespearean actor and had gone to, you know, Austria and, and um, Russia, and, you know, in those times when, you know, that wasn't easy to travel and in studying, you know, the theater. And I remember, and he did it for you know five or six years. And uh, I remember when I was going off after I'd won the medal finals, and he said, "Michael, I have a couple of pieces of advice for you." He said, "I think you're fulfilling your passion." And uh, he said, "Two things I want you to remember." He said, uh, "He said when uh, whenever you're in the washroom, and you know what we always wore watches with leather bands." He said, always, always remember to put your watch in your pocket, right? He said, you never leave it. And I remember when I was got off the train in uh, Neuchatel, the 2nd of January, and uh, I had no place to go, snowing on my suitcase and my saddle. And uh, I went to the youth hostel, and it was just when the, 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 the refugees were all coming in from, you know, one of the countries there that, uh, were, that were having problems. And... You know, he said, the second thing is, you know, he said, uh, you put your watch, your watch in your pocket, right? And the second thing is, any time you have to go to the bathroom, right? You never delay thinking that, you know, you can always go later. You know, when you're traveling, when you're in the world, he said, and those two pieces of advice I remember to this day. And when I do clinics, I talk about, you know, people who are going to go off and do different things. And it's amazing how how different the advice is, but how it impacts every single day of your life and you're better off for the advice that you get. 
And if you listen to the advice, you're happier, you're healthier, and, you know, life is just easier to deal with. And uh, we used to talk about religion. You know, we used to talk about religion, you know, on the subway going up to Grand Central State. And we used to be hanging on to things. And, he, you know, he didn't believe in God. He thought that people, you know, needed to create a God in order to answer the questions they had about, you know, what happens after you die, what happens, you know, things, you know, it was, you know, he had, he thought, you know, he thought religion was great for everybody that needed it, probably made him better, right? But, you know, right or wrong is also something that's, you know, easy to understand if you have the, you know, the, the, the knowledge and the experience and the ability to think. You know, it's not, you know, it's not, um, so those were a couple of the things that impacted me. And, uh, you know, I think, I think when he came back from, from Europe and he went to work and we made Hatline, you know, it was a third generation, fourth generation, Hatline's one of the dying industry. And I think what happened, he met my mother, worked in the factory. And I think what happened is no one has ever said this to me, but I think I came along. And when you have a child, the world changes. And I think he accepted that. And my mother was a great mother, and she lived for her family. And, uh, you know, but but uh, the, the experiences and the knowledge that I think he gained by all the traveling he did and all the experiences of of, you know, being in Europe and having to think for himself. And, you know, he passed that all on to me. So I never had to go through any of the difficulties, right? And I'm not sure that he had any difficulties. I think it was just how life makes changes where all the steps that I took, you know, happened to work out, you know, being in Paris and, you know, somewhere accepting students and civilians for the first time and going to Fontainebleau, the French national championships on a on a French horse and being sixth or seventh in the military section and my friend Herbie keeping the news of all the the events I competed with with Leduff and Durand in, in France and getting a telegram from you know, when I was finishing up my four years after the championships in Fulmerblad, getting a telegram from the team saying, you know, John Galvin had bought, had purchased six event horses for his daughter, Trish, who then decided she wanted to be a dressage rider. And so he was making Rancho San Fernando Ray um, uh, available to the team. He would sponsor the team, pay for the you know, the horses to go back to the Pan American Games. And so I called my father and he said, you know, do I have the shot? And he said, sounds, you know, like it's your dream come true. So from there, I went out to California. I got Grasshopper. You know, I'm small. Grasshopper was small. I could ride a little bit in those days. And he was, you know, as tough as nails and tougher than nails. And, um, you know... Of the fastest event horse in the world at that time, you know, not because he was that fast, but just because he went that fast after 22 miles that, um, that uh, you know, it was uh, unique and special. So uh, 
Um, you know, I, when I came back from France, I felt that I could sit on a horse if they stood up, and I probably could, you know, if you did as much riding and, you know, jumping, competing as, as one did. And at summer on Saturdays before they uh, let us go, we had to do the Sotero Pilier, which is where they do the croupade and the cabriole, you know, in the pillars. And they would launch you, you know, before they would let you. So you went, you know, you probably went six, eight feet in the air, you know, not because you couldn't sit on a horse, but because, you know, the 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 maître, the, the equier would all be laughing, you know, saying how many times it took to, you know, and then, you know, there was no hot water in the, in the, in the, you know, where the rooms were stayed during the winter. So we only, I only took a bath on Sundays. We only changed the sheets uh, once a month. So, you know, you can imagine riding in an indoor manege, right? But I, every day I used to get up and say, God, I can't believe how good this is. Don't have to think. See, obviously I was thinking I wasn't in college, not having to do math, right? So, um you know, it was a, it was a, it was an interesting experience. Well, I'm I'm curious. That your father was obviously very understanding about you wanting to spend your life with horses and take it very seriously because, right. you know, he had a, obviously a very different choices in life, but wanting yeah. to be a Shakespearean actor and going right. into a family business. Right. Was there any other? Equestrian influence in your family, his his family, none. your mother's family, none. your your siblings. None. Were you none. were you the lone soldier none. here? Lone, lone, lone. And my father knew nothing about horses and riding. I remember when I came back from Eddie Goldman's and I was riding uh, Herbie's, you know, the old the cavalry horse, and I was practicing my equitation. My father used to every once in a while come up watch me ride, and he said, you know, it doesn't look like you're making very good circles. You should do another 10, right? Because, you know, even I can see that the circles don't look like circles, right? <laughs> I mean, that was the extent of his, you know, I mean, we had a one-horse wooden trailer that my father paid half for that we used to take, you know, go to the horse shows. He used to pay half and Herbie paid half. And it was like, you know, I'm, you know it, it, it couldn't be done nowadays, I don't think. On the other hand, you know, it, you never can say never. One of the things I talk about when I do my clinics, when I used to judge my 30, 40 horse shows a year, um, you know, in the beginning when I was, you know, chairman of the equitation committee and, you know, this and the USCT board and stuff, um, I used to go to South Florida. And uh, uh, two years I used to judge horse shows down there, right? And there was one little horse show I used to go to. And there was, that was the time when, it must have been about 25, 30 years ago. There was, uh, you know, they used to bring all these, you know, in those days, you know, the cold-blooded horses that they brought from Germany really were, were, did not have the blood they have now. And, you know, we used to call them Dunbloods, right? And the ladies used to go over there and buy, the German boys used to ride, and they used to be perfectly schooled, perfectly dressaged, you know, horses that could jump a little bit, and they used to bring them back to... Florida and they used to do a little bit and all of a sudden the horses would look around and say this is ridiculous and this little person that's riding me can't ride forward so I'm not going to go forward anymore and, you know they hit him with a stick and all of a sudden they'd be rearing and I used to go to this little horse show and I promise you it's absolutely the truth first year I get there you know I see 
this 15, 16-year-old girl, and there'd be a horse standing up at the inn gate, right? And someone would walk up with a lunge whip and go, whack, and the horse would bolt into the ring. And I'd write on my judge's card, I still remember doing it, eliminated, right? Because it wouldn't even jump a jump. It would just bolt out the out gate, right? And four or five horses later, there'd be something coming in, right? And then this little girl would, you know, I'd say, holy Jesus, I hope she lives long enough to, you know, grow up. And I came back the next year, and there were horses doing exactly the same thing. And she'd be there, and some of them would go around. and But she, they were all different horses, and, you know, they I think she was probably 17 the second year, right? And, uh, um, you know, and uh, about, uh, oh, I would say 20 years later, I'm at the National Horse Show in New York, and uh, there's a girl riding on the United States team. And uh, I go up to Margie, and I say, Margie, you know, I use you as an inspiration. I remember in South Florida when you used to be those horses rearing at the end gate and someone would use a lunge whip and they'd bolt in and I'd write eliminated on the card. And she laughed and said, oh, I remember that, Michael. And uh, I said, do you realize how, you know, even in this day, you know, which is a lot, you know, many years later than when I did it, um, that there's still an opportunity for someone who doesn't have a horse to, you know, to be, you know, to go all the way to being on the team. She said, I remember that, right? And she said, what happened was that there was a gentleman, I forgot what she said his name was, that had a disgraced stallion called Daydream. And she said, he saw me riding, he saw me suffering, he saw me doing, you know, going through. And he said, Margie, right, um, I have a horse uh, stallion that I have seen you ride. I know how aggressive you are. I know how you've had to become aggressive. I know I want you to start riding this horse for me. And as she said, the rest, as they say, was history. And that night, she she had a mare at that time called Laurel. I don't know whether you remember Laurel or not, but Laurel was, I think, the one mare that went in a snaffle bridle and was probably the best horse. I Maybe she's had a lot of better ones since, but Laurel was, was special. And, and she won the Grand Prix in New York. There were four claims. She was the last to go in the jump off. There was a three-stride line, a three-stride bending line, you know, at five foot three. And she popped over the first one. Everybody had a rail down, either the first or the second. She did four strides, jumped clean, and won the Grand Prix in New York. And it was just, just for me, an amazing story to see in almost this day and age someone who literally came from nowhere to be one of the most successful and greatest Grand Prix riders in the United States. And it was something, you know, something that I enjoy talking about when I'm doing a clinic. And, you know, and to be there that night and talk to Margie and have her laugh about where she came from and how it gave her the opportunity to go where she went was just, I think, you know, inspiring for anyone who thinks that it cannot be done because she certainly has done it. Right. Well, I want to just go back to go join up your your earlier days to right. your progression onto the team, Michael. But before right. we do, okay. uh, there is an interesting story about how you met your wife, Georgette, because it was you, you were very both very young then, or she was particularly young. She was, she was particularly young. I was 
27, because I know I, we still have 10 years difference between, right? <laughs> so even I still can figure that out, right? It's one of the few things I can figure out. Do I, do I know the, the day? What, what? And the only way I can figure out the day, I know she was 17, it was Christmas time. And I got, as it would again, after Tokyo, I retired. I retired for two years, judged, you know, did a lot of, uh, uh, you know, judging and different things, you know, clinics, and worked in the city. And, uh, you know, and I got a call from the team, Gladstone. And they said, Michael, you know, we have some uh, some horses. And I had was had been uh, chairman of the selection committee for the eventing and, you know, um, you know, so I'd been really involved in, with the eventers. And uh, they said, we have a couple of horses, Gallopade, and, uh, um, and you know, would you be perhaps interested in coming back and, and, and trying one of the horses? And I said, I spoke to my father, and he said, you know, it's only a three-hour on the train, right, from, you know, Gladstone to the city. We were at 19 West 4th Street. My grandfather owned the building right off Washington Square. And uh, he said, you know, you can you do what, see what, see how it is. So I went out to Gladstone. It was probably the 21st of, you know, December, two years after, you know, uh, Tokyo. So that Edward, Tokyo was what, 60, 64, so 65, 66. So I can pretty much pinpoint it as 66, right? And uh, I walked in, and you know, the vent horses are all on the on the ground floor and the jumpers were all on the upper floor and but there's a ramp that goes up between the two you've been to gladstone haven't you yes indeed yes right and you know there's a ramp that goes up and down you know from the two floors Mm -hmm. right because that's where foster used to go up to look at snowbound you know when we turned them loose right so um i walked into the barn we came in you know came down the stairs and there was a girl sitting on the Back trunk, right at the corner, right where uh, I don't know either either Gallopate or Foster was in the stall, and uh, you know I had saw Stefan Vandishi, and he said go see. I I thought he had said George, but it was Georgette. So I walked down and I said, you know, I'm supposed to see George. So she glared at me, right, because her name was Georgette. Right? I mean, she was cute, right? But she certainly didn't think much of me for calling her the wrong name, right? And I said, I'm supposed to get on ride the horse. Um, and uh, so I think I rode two horses, and I said, which horse do you take care of? And she said, oh, I, you know, I'm, you know, not happily, right? She said, I had foster, right? And he's had some problems with Plum Guy, went to Burley, the world championships. And I had remember since I was either selector or chairman of the selection committee, Meg Palm owned the horse. And Meg was a little bit weak. And I don't mean weak in a bad way, but the horse always had, you know, he always knew he could take advantage of her. So she'd go to pull, and he'd pull harder. And he, since he was a naturally talented jumper, he really was pretty special. Everybody thought he was special when Meg was riding him because he took over from Meg and sort of did the job. And then when he was given to the team because he was really sort of a special talent, 
and looked like he had a special brain because he was always, always, you know, sort of taking over from her. Um, they gave him to Mike, who was the leading rider, and he was the special horse. And they went to Burley, and I think he stopped at the fifth fence at the water. And uh, so he came home, and they did a few schooling sessions with him, and they sort of broke his, his spirit a little bit, or a lot. And Georgette made sure that he went and was turned out. And then when he came back, you know, I said, which horse, you know, which horse do you take care of? And she said, uh, Foster. I said, oh, I remember Foster. I remember when Meg rode him, right? And he was really special. I said, well, we, everyone thought he was special, but Mike rode him. And it's not Mike's kind of a horse. Mike dominates a horse. And Mike, you know, Mike rode eight Olympic Games. And everybody has a little bit different style, but if your style doesn't match the, the you know the the, the positive aspects of the horse, um, it you know it might not work. And with Mike and Foster, it didn't work. I mean, it's worked with a lot of other horses, but with Foster, it didn't work. So I said, geez, you know, um, you know, I think this would be a. I had seen him as a, as a really good horse, as everybody else had seen him when Meg rode him. Um, he didn't suit Mike, and uh, you know, and uh, the, the the schooling was not pretty, and it really bothered the horse a lot. But you know, since the girl was really cute, and I knew the horse might be really good, I thought that would be a really cool horse to to take on as a as a not because I thought he wasn't going to get to be good but because I thought he might be able to be good. And um, so I lived at Gladstone, and I commuted three hours to the city, and then I came back three hours every night and lived upstairs, and I started dating Georgette, who did the horse. And when we used to go come back, which probably no one knows, you know, the jumpers were upstairs, you know, San Lucas and Snowbound and, you know, all the great horses, and you know, George and and Billy and everybody, and no one used to be around at night, and the horse used to, he really, he used to tremble in the corner, and, you know, we used to figure out that, this was George Hatt figuring out, you know, that he needed not to be afraid to walk out of the stall, so we used to go down, you know, when I got back, we used to go up to the Chester Diner, have dinner, and then drive back, and it used to be dark, we'd put lights on, night check, and, uh, I'm sure it was my wife who figured out. She said, you know what, we, you know, he doesn't, you know, he cowers in the corner. We got to get him to come out. And I said, you know, the best thing, you know what we could do? Why don't we open his stall door and let him see if we can just encourage him to walk out on his own. And after about three weeks, we got so he would walk out of the stall. He would walk up the ramp upstairs and all the horses upstairs would go sort of a little went nothing bad i mean we wouldn't have done it right but he used to cop his way up and that was the beginning of him sort of returning a little bit to being and it was all due to georgette she she loved the horse. i didn't say she loved the horse but she believed in the horse and she knew that all the different things and so that was the horse i took to badman Met Lars Cedarholm over there, where David O'Connor was, you know, went a little bit later with Wilton Fair. That was a really other interesting story. And Lars made me ride, you know, the I think we did six horse trials before Badman, 
and we would walk the course. We would figure out, you know, where the water was, right? I would double handful either before or after, you know, and ride the one jump, which was the water jump, like it was the, you know, the end of the world. And then I'd double handful again and sort of get him to where he realized that, you know, jumping into the water, jumping, you know, combinations through the water. Um, were, and then we went to badminton, and we were tenth at badminton, and then came back and then did the Pan American Games and then the, you know, then the Olympic Games. And, uh, you know, it turned out. And then when he was finished, uh, he was given to Jack, you know, who then became, you know, at the, the uh, coach of the team after the 68, you know, game. So it was a, it was... It was due to my current great wife's uh, feelings and connection to the horse. And, you know, when we, I was 40th out of 47 horses after dressage in, uh, in uh, Mexico. And it was really interesting how that all worked out. One of the, we're down in Mexico, and Georgia was there to doing the horse. And, uh, one of the and I'd always go on with Grasshopper. He's the third or fourth. Mike was usually fourth. I was third. And one of the grooms said, "Mike, hey, we heard Mike and Kevin talking. I heard Mike and Kevin talking the story." May, this is Kevin Freeman. Yeah, Kevin. They, you know, and Mike had plain sailing, one of the great horses of the world ever. Kevin had Shalon, who was world champion with uh, Carlos Moratorio before. So I mean, this wasn't anything, you know, that you couldn't, you know justifiably say I had Foster who had quit out with uh, with uh, I mean I was third of the Pan Am games in Winnipeg but that's really but they had two you know world class horses and he said you know they were talking he was talking they were talking to Lynch and they they convinced him that I said no way I always go you know third or fourth right I'm not going to go second and Lynch came to me the next day and said Michael you know I, I've decided that you need to go second so I jumped up and down a little bit and nothing I could do right so I went second and uh, um, you know the boys went third and fourth you know probably justifiably so not saying there's anything you know other than I was sort of irritated and pissed off about it and uh, but I was 40th you know and so what happened was you know I went second right and uh, um, son of a gun you know the monsoons start right, you know, around 1 o'clock. So, um, one, a little interesting story. I wouldn't have gotten around the cross-country if it hadn't been. When I was back at Gladstone, um, Bert the Nemesis, you know, Count the Nemesis or whatever, I used to commute to the city, you know, three hours each way, you know, six hours commuting. You know, not every single day, but maybe three days a week, you know, and then, uh, you know, so one day I'm walking into the, the front door at Gladstone and Bert's coming out. And I was, you know, I was getting tired of having to get up. If George had the horse ready for me at 4.30 in the morning, right, I'd clump down the stairs. I'd, you know, get on. I'd ride out, you know, in the dark and, you know, get, you know, like an 8, eight o'clock train. So 7.30, so I'd be in, you know, to the... The, the, you know, to Washington Square and work and then get back on the train, come back in. One day, Bert's coming out. He said, Mr. Dennedy, can I talk to you? He sort of looked down his nose at me like he always did, right? And I said, uh, you know, there's something, you know, not very 
democratic about the system of having the event riders always ride after the jumping riders. I said, uh, um, you know, it, you know, I have to go to the city every day, and it just seems like it would be fair, you know, somewhat to have the jumping riders change the schedule with the event riders. And Von Vichy had been, had was, you know, a friend and uh, of Denemethy. So whatever Denemethy said, it was like, you know, just law, right? And so he wouldn't even entertain any thoughts. So I knew I had to go right to Denemethy, right? He sort of thought I was a creep. But, um, you know, so he just sort of looked down his nose at me like I was, you know, you know, the peasant, which probably thought I was, you know, you know, commoner, whatever. And I said, but in addition, you know, we're the only ones that won a medal in Tokyo. So you jumpers didn't ever win a medal, right? So I think we should get some benefit of us winning the only medal. That, that did not sit well with him at all, right? I mean, so we never spoke again. I mean, never... Um, I knew he was pissed at me, and you know maybe rightly so. But you know there was a lot, a lot for me personally at stake, and then nothing to do with the team. So we're in Mexico, right, at the Olympic Games, you know, and I go second, and it's about a mile walk up to the start of the cross country, and I think it was Dr. O'Day and myself. You know, go to you know where the entrance to the to the to whatever where the stabling and everything, which is separate, right? And as I'm going there, Georgette leads Foster up, and I have the saddle, and because I carry lit, right? And I have the saddle, and as Doc, I think it was Doctor, I'm not sure what that was, right? I don't know whether it was Marty or Doctor Day or whoever. I think, but I don't think it was Marty Simpson. But, you know, he hit, we're standing there. I have the saddle, and Georgette's off with Foster. And we're standing out in the front where the cars come up. And he hits his head and he says, Oh my God, Michael. I said, I left my keys to our, our car back at the chalet. And just at that minute, you know, about 100 feet away is uh, the show jumping team car with Bert, Billy, um, George, I don't know who else was in the car, Frank, right, Park, right, facing us. And I said, geez, good, look, good news, right? There's the show jumping car. You know, go over and, you know, get the keys from Bert, right? And we'll use their car just to go up, and you can bring it back, right? There, yeah. So he walks over to Bert, and I promise you, I can see Bert shaking his head no, right? Not going to give the keys to, for me to go up to the start of the cross country, right? And just at that minute, right, a big four that big Citroen pulls up, and in it is Guillaume, right, who's, who I know from somewhere and this really cute French girl sitting in the back, right? And so, I, you know, I mean, he's still talking to Bert. Bert, I know, is not going to let me take the car, 
right? Which, you know, I can sort of understand. But, you know, the Gleon's right there in no time, right? So I asked Gleon, do you mind giving up me? Oh, no, Michael, jump in, right? You know, go. So, because he went before, right before me or right after me. So I jump in the car and go up, you know, we start the cross country, right? We go around, we go, you know, do the people chase, you know, everything sort of going good, right? Foster still Foster. Really talented, you know, looks like, you know, I've always said he looks like Mike Tyson. If you get into him, there's a little heart, right? And so we get through the, oh, and what I did was I went to the ground jury and I, and you know, the small German spurs, the little pointed spurs that the German spurs, I went to the ground jury and asked if I could ride with those spurs. And they said, yes. So obviously I needed a little bit of, uh, you know, enthusiasm for the horse if Casey was thinking about doing something he shouldn't have thought about. So we go get that's like the fifth or sixth is the water. You know, they jump into the rushing stream because there was a stream all the way across, right? That, and so we get, and as we're going, I think of like Prince 10 or 12, and way over to the left of the stables, and we're going, you know, 40th, right? You only got one way to go. You know, you put the pedal to the metal, and, you know, whatever happens, happens. So, you go, and there was a jump, was a bank with a big ditch, and then a railroad tie behind it, you know, which was like, six inches thick. I mean, it was like he had to go up on the bank, you know, and then jump, you know, it's like bounce off the bank over the railroad, you know, crossing, right? So it was a big, and as we're going like about out of hell to this thing, I could see his ears start flicking like he's looking at the, at the uh, stables. And I could, I mean, I know what he's saying. Hey, what the hell are we doing out here, right? There's the stables over there, and there looks like a big damn jump in front of me right, even though I'm going this fast, right, I think there's a way for me maybe to get out, and I'm going, oh, God, here, yeah, right, this is this is it. All, so as we're going, he goes on, and, you know, I knew his, his heart was not in jumping it. The talent was there, but the heart was, right? So as we're doing the, in the air, onto the bank, with the ditch, with the, with the railroad crossing in front of me, I think about Bert Tenemethy, and I go, Jesus Christ, right? Bert is going to be the happiest person in Mexico if I screw up and have a stop or, worse, get eliminated at this jump. I said, it's better to die than it is to have an refusal or an elimination. So I took those spurs and I stuck them in as hard as, I mean, they, you know, the two spurs met in the middle of the horse. And he just launched and he hit it between his chest and above his knee. And I could feel his, his rear, the tail coming up over me. And I was looking straight down at the ground, right? And I don't know what happened. Both his front shoes came off, right? And... As I'm, I'm looking so straight down at the ground, right? But I'm saying, look, death is better than, better than a refusal, right? I'm looking straight at the ground. I see one leg stick out in front of him, right? He hits the ground, doesn't flip over, right? Doesn't fall, right? His chest is, I don't know how, it, you know, I think the momentum just pushed him through. He hits the ground, we go on. 
and we jump uh, around clean. And, uh, you know, then the show jumping, I was fifth. I was fourth in uh, Tokyo, which is a bad place to be, just missing metal. And then, uh, you know, what happened was the rains came. And uh, when the rains came, the water that we were jumping is an open water ditches. It was about six inches above the edge. So two or three of the horses that were going in the rain, and Kevin rode, I mean, you couldn't see the horse's ears. It was raining so hard. So he uh, had a problem, and Mike had a little problem. And so I was walking in the in a shed row. The sun was shining when I was finished. And when if I had gone in the rain, it would have been, you know, I, you know, I don't even want to think about it. And anyway, we got to the show jumping, and there were, um, I was fifth after going around because of the eliminations, because of the rain, not because I was anywhere too spectacular, but, you know, good enough. That's the way, the way it is, right? And uh, fifth. So, uh, you know, I think I jumped clean or something. And they were going the reverse order. And then Jimmy was, I think, third after the... And he's coming around, standing there watching. And he comes around the corner. And the horse on the flat falls, slips. He go out from underneath him. Right, falls. You know, we, Jesus. Right? Now I'm fourth. There's one more horse to go. Right? And it's Pavel Dev who was leading the for the gold medal and uh, for the Russian team, and he's like three fences from the end, so I'm fourth, which is a shitty place to be because, you know, I was fourth in Tokyo, right? So, you know, it's, you know, I mean, as long as you're there, you want to do good, obviously, right? So the three more jumps to go. I'm in fourth place, and instead of jumping the last two jumps, the last line, he turns, crosses the diagonal, jumps the wrong jump, right, and is eliminated. So then I'm third. So I get a medal. And what happened was, you know, that uh, Prince Philip was the, you know, the FEI, whatever, whatever, and uh, head of the whatever. And uh, what happened was that the Russians got caught using walkie-talkies on the cross country, and instead of creating a international incident. They eliminated the team by doing that, and so they went from gold medalist to nothing. And I moved up, and and so when I was on the airplane going home, I went, Jesus Christmas, right? This has been a really good run, right? But it doesn't get any luckier than that. Doesn't get any better than that. Now's the time to just keep riding, and uh, so that's when I made the transition to, you know, they were teaching jumping, right? And, uh, well, of all the medals that you won, Mike, and right. all the, your accomplishments, uh, right. which of those are you most proud of now when you reflect on your career? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, but the, the, one, the one special medal is the picture we have in our you know, family room. It shows me standing on the individual medal um, at uh, Mexico. But Georgette standing behind me with her pigtails holding the horse. Right. And that, 
that, that to me is always the most special. The family I mean, moment, absolutely, special yeah. occasion. Well, yeah, I mean, from, from all your team activities, of course, for the U.S. And, and the role that you played here, you then went on to become the national coach for Canada, didn't you, for yeah. the 76 Olympics and, and yeah. chef to keep for the 88 in Seoul and 90 right. World Championships and, right. and Barcelona as well. Right. How did that come about? Because well, you mentioned Sheila Wilcox earlier, of right. course, in the days of Eddie Goldman. Sheila was, of course, the coach for the Canadian team uh, in 75, just before yeah. you. 74, 75. Yeah. So how did your position come about, Mike? And uh, did you see this as an opportunity to become a coach as a natural progression in your career? No, not really. It was just, it was like everything else. It was just sort of a interesting aspect of education and experience. You know, I mean, it's always nice to go to the Olympics, right? I mean, it's always nice to sort of do it. And, you know, with Jimmy Day and Robin Hahn and, you know, um, Kathy Wedge and uh, Liz Ashton and Liz, right? Yes. So they, there was it was a really good team. They and the Canadians are very independent people, right? Um, and I don't mean that in a negative sense, but you know they're and you know I think with Sheila, I, it just didn't work. You know the dynamics didn't work. The riders rebelled. I mean, you know, I mean, but the American riders rebelled with Jack, right? So you know that's that's not anything. Unusual, and even today, when George writes about why they didn't, uh, didn't, didn't, you know, do better in the Super League and the and the World Championships, it's well, you know, the riders and the owners have, you know, are interested in the, you know, the uh, the Grand Prix on Sunday. Well, maybe didn't the, the the focus wasn't on the Nations Cup on Saturday, right? I mean, so. That's that's an inherent part of individuals getting together as a team, and I think you know when push came to shove, you know I think the the team that went to the Pan American Games just now, um, you know was you know when everything was at stake, you know the whole country, the whole thing for London, you know I think they came together together, and for once the real focus was on putting every piece of energy and uh, you know knowledge and and togetherness and that's and that's what happened you know with the Pan American Games and then qualifying and being one two three four or five or whatever it was I mean there are great riders but when you know I mean team sports when team scores and you know and George was the one that wrote it you know, not me saying it, but the Pan American Games shows what a, you know, the, the team is the sum of the parts. And when the sum of the parts all work in the same direction, you know, you get a much better result. And if, you know, perhaps, you know, people have different priorities. I mean, not that Nations Cup isn't important. So, you know, it's something that, that hasn't changed. You know, it's a, you know, it's like, you know, the issue with Jack LaGuff, you know, I think Jack was an enormously influential, positive, great horseman. But, you know, the the riders that grew up and had their own thoughts, you know, Mike's and Bruce's, and, you know, ultimately, you know, ultimately had their own thoughts, right? And I, I remember when I took the team to 
you know, I was the one that Jack Fritz called me after Jack O'Duff was finished, and it was amazing. I mean, there I had some some influence in Jack coming to the United States for the 12 years that he, 10 years, 12 years that he was here, and and uh, Jack Fritz called me about becoming chef to keep when Jack was, you know, no longer, you know, coach, and uh, I remember. I remember going to Gawler, uh, the World Championships, and I had the gold medal team from Los Angeles and Kim Walmus, the Grey Goose, and uh, Derek DeGrazia, and uh, the medal team, you know, Torrance and and Karen and Bruce and Mike, and uh, and we went to Ranella, which was uh, the, the big horse trials two weeks before the World Championships. And it was a really tough course, much tougher than the World Championship course turned out to be. And uh, Jack LeGuff had uh, called me on the phone and said, Michael, I'm taking a tour to, uh, you know, this is sort of the same idea of what George went through this summer. I'm taking a tour to Gaul or to World Championships, and I would be honored to be in charge of the spy system for for you know the cross country and I said Jack that was you know I mean that would be terrific I would be honored to have you be in charge of that I mean no one knows more about what's cross country than you know and and being a coach you know I'm not really coach I'm sort of you know a chef to keep and so you know we after Ranella you know, I think we were one, two, three, four, five, and Mike had a fall and either dislocated his shoulder or something like that. And uh, you know, they were they were awesome. They were great. I mean, they were they were on top of the world. I mean, they the course was really challenging, really tough. The horses were ready. Um, and uh, and then I think probably two days later. Bruce and Mike came to me and he said, we'd like to talk to you. I said, sure. You know, what do you want to talk to me about? He said, we heard that Jack LeGuff has offered to be head of the spy system. I said, yeah, isn't that great? I mean, who knows more about things? Well, uh, um, we don't think that uh, he's going to give us the right information. I said, you got to be you out of your mind, right? What do you, you know, he made you. How could he give you that right? And I they said, no, no, no. They said, we're serious. I said, okay, well, look, I want everybody to get. So I had to set the seven riders down around the big table, right? And I said, I'm going to go around the table, and I'm going to ask each and every one of you. I said, you have to tell me. I said, do you think that Jack LeGuff is going to give you the wrong information about the cross country? I had seven riders. Seven riders all said yes. So I had to call Jack tell him that uh, couldn't have him doing the, the thing. So, I, you know, I, and then, then, then the, the event was a disaster. Everybody rode to it because they all thought they were capable, you know, because of what they had done. They all, and, and everybody screwed up. I mean, you know, it was, a, it was not good. But, you know, it just shows to go you. Right, I mean, the back had been there, and they they were all being pissing mad, 
and did what he said, they probably all would have won again. But, uh, well, that, know. of course, was the 1986 Gawler World Championships yeah. in Australia you're referring to. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, let's look back then, um, uh, Michael. It, the, yeah. You mentioned some really top names that have influenced your career that you've been involved with, starting with Eddie Goldman back there. Right. Who would you say were the most influential in terms of, uh, of, you, of the influence they've had on you as a rider and as a clinician and coach right. in all of those roles? What, who, who, who would stand out for you? Well, you know, I think, you know, from my time in France, right, Colonel Margot, you know, his dressage, right, and Legoff, right, and then and then Lars Saderholm, who I took foster to, you know, in in to England when we were after I got him as a first ride. No one trusted him, so I said, "Well, we have to go prove it," you know, in the world stage. So I went over to because Lars had been um, uh, Meg Plum had trained with Lars in England. So she was very happy. I paid half, and she paid half, and I went and spent the winter and then rode at badminton. So Lars, you know, who, you know, Yogi Bresner, who's now the coach of the of the British team, right, spent 13 years with Lars, and Lars, always his mantra was in balance forward, and I still talk to Lars every every Christmas, and I've gone and visited him in Sweden, and I think... He, as an event trainer, um, certainly had the biggest influence as far as my competitive successes, right? And uh, and when I was in Germany at Paul Steckens, uh, there was a, a Reiner Klimke, I was 20, and Reiner Klimke was 21. And Reiner Klimke, who became Dr. Klimke, and double Olympic gold medalist and double world champion and one of the greatest dressage warriors and ever was an event rider and already on the German national team going to Rome. And Reiner um, and I were not close friends, but I certainly respected his more you know, knowledge and experience. He was already on the German national three-day event team. And I remember talking to Reiner one day, and he had a tremendous influence on on my philosophy and theory about riding. And I was talking to Reiner, and I said, Reiner, you have to be very proud, right? And I did my first three-day event with Reiner in Germany on a mare called Amzitat, which was Paul Stecken's horse. And uh, uh, I said to Reiner, isn't exciting yet? You're going to be you know, on the German team. And, you know, there's an outside shot that, you know, maybe in two years, you know, I'll see you in Rome. And uh, Reiner looked me straight in the eye, and I'll never forget this. You know, he looked me straight in the eye and said, Michael, all event riders are crazy. And my mouth dropped open. Now, this was Reiner Klimke at 21, and I was 20. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, you're a rider. You're, you know. He said, Michael, let me explain something to you. He said, I have 
read all the classic history of the theory of riding, and I have and respect, you know, the masters who have come before me, and I spend uh, spent, you know, part of every day of my life reading and trying to understand the theory of riding. And the one thing that I can be sure about is that the broader the foundation of going forward and straight, right, and the experience that I can establish with my riding skills, right, that ultimately the broader and sounder the foundation of my riding forward and straight Ultimately, when I get to the very pinnacle of where I aspire, this is Kunk at 21, when I get to the pinnacle of where I aspire to go, because the foundation of where I've come from is broader and sounder, that I will ultimately be able to stay up there, go higher, and stay up there longer. This is Clint, Clint, 21. Absolutely. I mean, there's talk about name dropping. There's a really eclectic group of of horsemen that have influenced you, and uh, now today, you as you said, you continue to teach regularly and uh, and give clinics, uh, Michael. So, what is a typical day in the life of Michael Page now? Right now, I get up at quarter to six every morning, right, and uh, you know, at quarter to seven, I leave, and I'm up at the barn usually at eight o'clock. And, uh, you know, I have a horse now at Kent. The reason I've been at Kent for 18 years, we have great donations. Um, about 10 years ago, um, uh, Robin Squealy at Acorn Hill Farm had a horse that she had won the World Cup class at Devon and the Upperville Grand Prix, a horse called Showman. And uh, she sold it begrudgingly to uh, Cornelia Guest, who was doing the, was wanting to do the Grand Prix. And it didn't go too well because he was a very tough horse to jump the, the water. He didn't like jumping water. And uh, But Tim Grubb, who was a trainer, said, Michael, this horse, and Tim Grubb has been in the four Olympic Games, he said, Michael, this horse can jump the biggest oxer of any horse I've ever sat on in my life. And I went, holy shit. And that should be pretty good for me. And I rode him for four years uh, without stirrups and did all my showing. You know, so I remember down in Ocala, I jumped level seven. I don't know what that is, meter 35, something like that. And I did all my showing without stirrups, right? Because I was never interested in competing. I just wanted to, I just wanted to ride. And this horse was really cool. I mean, he could jump anything, right? But he didn't like the water. I mean, that was always a struggle. But uh, And uh, so I, I did up to level seven and no stirrups. And I used to jump on my horse, jump off my horse. And I remember looking, in, going to a level seven class, and Ian Miller was standing there. He said, you're not going to go in there without stirrups, are you? And I said, yeah, that's all I do. I still ride without stirrups. I, you know, You know, if you never put your stirrups on, it's really pretty simple to ride without stirrups. Anyone could do it. You mean you can't be competitive, but you can you can enjoy the idea of riding your horse better because you sit tighter and you know your leg is better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I jumped around level seven that. So, um, but uh, you know the 
you know, I think also, you ever heard of Benny O'Mara? Yes. Okay. Well, I have a story about Benny O'Mara, right? I was going down to Judge, I don't know, it was Upperville, but uh, um, Colony Farms is right on the main road when you go down to, I've forgotten what the town is, right? But everybody knows it. And uh, Benny had just built Colony Farm, and it was unique and special. And, and Benny was a genius on horses, but came from a, you know, he was a you know, Bronx blacksmith or whatever he was, and, you know, started, you know, I don't know, he just kept it simple, right? He put a leg on each side and made sure that the horses went forward. And, uh, you know, I think he rode with them all. You know, I don't know exactly, right? But I was, you know, I did not know Benny very well. But I certainly had heard the legend of Benny O'Mara. And uh, so, and Benny knew who I was. I mean, we weren't friends. I wasn't, you know, doing the same thing he did. He's, you know, remember he sold Jacks Are Better to Neil Shapiro with the first $25,000 horse, right? And... Uh, he was, he, he was, you know, he revolutionized horse sales and jumping and, you know, with Kathy and, um, you know. But anyway, I stopped one day at just the one time that I was there, Colony Farms. I walked in and Benny was in the indoor ring and I've forgotten the name of the boy that was riding for him. And they had just started this horse and the horse was a four-year-old. And he gave the boy the leg up. And the thing, you know when, you know how they crow hop around when they're not used to saddles, when they're not used to, to you know, to anything, right? He sort of trot around. Benny was standing on the start, and he sort of rubs his under his chin, you know. And he sort of, you know, tells him, you know, just let him sort of relax, go, go around. And, um, he said, yeah, you know, I'm going to, you know, give this horse a little school and see what, it's, what he's like. And I said, geez, it doesn't look like he's done much. He said, no, this is like the third time we've had him under saddle, right? And uh, he looked it. I mean, it was like, holy geez, right? I mean, I wouldn't have wanted to been set on him, right? So and then what was interesting was he had a little gymnastic. And the gymnastic was very similar to what Bert and Emothy used to do, what I use, right? Is, uh, you know, the little balancing rail and the cross rail and a little boxer, you know, and uh, so the horse settled down, sort of trotted around, cantered around, and uh, he was trotting, and uh, um, Benny said, okay, to steer him to the, it was just single, there was a rail on the ground, put a rail on the ground, horse trotted back and forth on the rail, and Benny said, geez, he does that okay, right, and then he put a little balancing rail, a cross rail, and there was standards set up for a little combination, right, and uh, there the horse trotted a little bouncing rail and a little cross rail. And then he lengthened it and opened the distances up so that the horse just quietly cantered the little cross rail and it was a little oxer. And then he opened it up again and then it was sort of like a cross rail, cross, double cross rail. And he just come back and forth and then he'd let him walk a little bit and pick up the canter and you can see the horse prick up his ears. And the... Uh, uh, they did this for like 20 minutes, and at the end of the 20 minutes, 
and a horse was jumping like four foot nine, right, through this little combination. I stood there with my mouth open, and Benny turns to me and said, hmm, I think I'm going to make some money on this one, right? And it turned out to be Steve's Poppet that uh, Bucky Reynolds rode and won a classes, a couple of classes at the National Horse Show, right? And But what was fascinating was to see how much he got into the horse's head and how he sort of adjusted every height and every distance to make this baby horse comfortable about, I, you know, I've never seen it since or even dreamed about it, but it was, it wasn't so much that it was unique and special of the horse, but it was unique and special of the trainer. And it was, you know, it was just, but what was fascinating was how many different types of things he had seen, plus his genius about how he understood who the horse was and what the horse could do that made it, you know, I don't, you know, how, but I remember, you know, two years later that, you know, the Bucky, I think, told me, you know, where the horse came from, what he was, you know, how young he started, and it was fascinating to see that, right? That was, it was, uh, you know, and, and, you know, when you talk about, you know, and also at Summer, one of the great riders that I saw, Lars was a working student for Major Henri Sincere. And Sincere, so there was Sincere and Margot and Leguff and Saderholm and Pierre Durand, who became in Nesquikavia, all that I got to ride with when I was at Summer. So it was. You know, it, but, but what was so fascinating was the 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 theory was all the same, but the personalities of the people used the theory in different ways. I mean, only sincere. You know, double Olympic gold medals had Jubilee or whatever the horse then couple of the other horses and I used to watch him ride and Lars used to warm the horses up and you know um, do that and then you'd see Margot come you know the theory was the same but the execution of the theory was so different in the personality of the people absolutely you know? well Michael how would you like to be remembered as a horseman I don't I don't I just you know that I've contributed something to, you know, to a lot of the clinics that I've done and, you know, that the people, you know, know more and ride better and have half the pleasure I've had in my life for helping understand how to make the horse go better because he likes you more because you ride better. I think that would be the you know, the, the the most satisfactory thing that one can do. And, you know, and, uh, you know, it's been, 
you know, it's been, you know, I'm 73 now, and I don't think anything's really changed. You know, each day is, you know, is is the same. It's, and I ride as well, you know, as Billy said, but I probably never ride as well as I could have ridden. But, you know, the pleasure and joy of riding, and I think for so many people, you know, they don't necessarily become great riders, but they get an enormous pleasure from their riding and their connection to the horses. Well, that's clearly and, something that you've done over the years, Michael, and led, and led a very successful life as a competitor and a complete life as a horseman. And I want to thank you very much indeed for spending this time with us and sharing your reflections and memories on a life well spent with horses. Thank you so much indeed for your time. And thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Please join me again next time when we celebrate the life of another equestrian legend.